Hello everyone and welcome to Behold, the podcast where we cast our all-seeing eye over the world of comic book adaptations and try to sort the super from the substandard. Who's we? Well, I'm your host Andrew and as usual I'm joined by my co-host Mick. And God help us, we try to get rid of him but Graham is back with us again. Something something quantum. <laughs> That'll do! <laughs> That's like 50% of the dialogue in an Ant-Man movie, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Something, something quantum and something, something out of the hands of bastards like him. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then just intercut random bits of Paul Cut and Paul Rudd and Michael Keaton just yelling, Ants! <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, today we are beholding Ant-Man. And we're definitely doing the introduction like this for deliberate reasons, not because I forgot to write the rest of the introduction. <laughs> this no, it's fine. I did write it. It's just the writing's too small to see. See, <laughs> I'm actually it. Move your monitor closer. Actually, no, no, I'm sorry. It's not that the writing's smaller. It's, it's just... The- that the space between the atoms of the writing has been <laughs> reduced. Have they- have you written your notes in the quantum realm? That's it, yes. That's the scene ah. with the cows in Father Ted would be very different if <laughs> it was uh, taking place in the Ant-Man universe. <laughs> yeah, I'm just disappointed See, this film came out in 2015, long after I'd graduated any kind of educational institution. <laughs> so I can't say, sorry, my homework got lost in the quantum realm. <laughs> yes. Um, that's it. Fa- that, that Father Ted had... Um, episode will go something like the ones out there are far away but these ones don't exist in a space where normal rules of time and space apply MC Escher's Father Ted <laughs> yeah <laughs> D- Dougal's a much more relatable character in that program <laughs> <laughs> oh dear so yeah Ant-Man, the 2015 Marvel film, directed by Peyton Reed, written by every single brother in Hollywood. (laughs) Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish, Adam McKay, and Paul Rudd. And based on the Marvel character, created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. Which, I mean, you probably could have guessed two of those three since it's a Marvel character in the 60s. Yeah, Joe Cornish is never out of the offices. Yeah. <laughs> so, background. Are you guys overly familiar with Ant Man? I remember reading Ant Man comics as a kid in those times when Spider Man, Thor, Fantastic Four, and um, Hulk weren't available in my local comic shop from the Marvel uh, stable. Um, and by comic shop, I mean news agents at the top of the road. This does just just make Ant-Man sound like Poundland Spider-Man, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it does. Well, the hyphen's in the same place, and you never see them in the same room together, except that one movie. Yes, you never see them in the same room together, apart from in the team-ups. Yes. You can't do that joke with any Marvel character, can you? I know, no. Do they have any shots together, though? 
well, I suppose no one has any shots together. They just all film stuff when they can find some space in their schedule and it gets comped together on green screen. So, yeah, if anything, the joke works even better. Yeah. God, that's, that's one of those terrifying things to think about modern Hollywood, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Have Paul Rudd and Tom Holland ever been in a room together or is it all just CGI? No two actors in Hollywood have ever actually met each other in person. Even the premieres are done on a green screen. Does this mean we can't expect any offspring from the relationship between Zendaya and Tom Holland? No, it doesn't. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, God, but what if they do and it's just that creepy baby from Twilight? <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing, but I've never seen past the first 20 minutes of Twilight. Oh, you should see some of the gifts from the last movie. They're they're pretty special. They make yeah. the whole thing worthwhile. <laughs> I I doubt that. Based <laughs> on the first twenty minutes of the first movie, I doubt anything could make it worthwhile. <laughs> Still, kudos to both Stuart and Pattinson for having careers after those movies. Yeah, as a friend of the show, Mark Harrison, once pointed out, it is quite ominous that after getting through Twilight, Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson eventually dived into the two most unbearable fan bases by gender, Batman for the men and Princess Diana for the women. (laughs) I'm waiting for the team-up movie, though. (laughs) Dawn of Justice. Anyway, speaking of absolutely unbearable people, Hank Pym. Yes. So, yeah, um, it's actually he's kind of a, an interesting superhero origin story in that in his debut comic, it wasn't actually a superhero comic. Because he first appeared in a book called Tales to Astonish which was an anthology series kind of more doing like horror and sci-fi stories. He can't have done because I distinctly remember someone in the film saying, this isn't Tales to Astonish. You're right. There's, there's been some on the nose references in people's films. But that one was definitely up there. Tales to Astonish so, is, is giving it the hard sell, isn't it, as a title? Yeah. Tales to Take You Somewhat Aback didn't work with test audiences, though. Tales to Divert on a Wet Sunday Afternoon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was going to be Tales that Make You Go, hmm. Well, obviously, there, there was some copyright awkwardness with that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, in the original story... Um, it's more just a riff on the Incredible Shrinking Man. So Hank Pym is a scientist. Discovers a formula that makes him get very little. Goes, ooh, look at all these scary ants. And then kind of goes back to normal size and says, well, bloody hell, never doing that again. And then promptly did that again quite a lot of times. Yes. So, so in much the same way that Batman became Batman as a symbol of fear, Ant-Man became Ant-Man because ants were terrifying when you're tiny. Yeah, I like I like the idea that he just didn't realise that 
being afraid of ants doesn't translate that well for the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) I'll strike terror into the hearts of criminals everywhere. (laughs) By carrying leaves in a way that makes it look like they're being carried by some kind of invisible force. Normally, right, if a criminal sees an ant, they're not scared. But I plan to sneak up on criminals exclusively when they're eating jam scones in the park. (laughs) I mean, that that does make a level of sense because it would explain why Hank Pym, like, very quickly abandoned the identity of Ant-Man to have, like, 700 other superhero identities. Oh, is he one of those? One of those who can't pick a costume and stick with it? Yes, because he has been Ant-Man, Giant-Man, Goliath, Yellow Jacket, confusingly at one point, The Wasp. (laughs) And sometimes he just goes by Dr. Pym. Was that during his non-binary phase when he became The Wasp? Yeah, he's identity fluid is what I'm getting. (laughs) Look, I think men only want one thing, and it's to be either very little or very big. <laughs> but yeah, that, that that is one of the main things that Hank Pym is known for is constantly switching identities, which is probably the best thing he's known for. Because yes. the other things he's known for are slapping his wife Janet and creating Ultron, the murder robot. (laughs) Both of which the movies have wisely absolved him of, really, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, I think the movies have done a good job of kind of stripping out some of the more... (laughs) Just cleaning away the more problematic parts while keeping that fundamental character trait of... I think Pym's just a bit of an arsehole. He is, but he's played I, very cannily by Michael Douglas, who has a career going back about 40 years now of making complete assholes kind of charming. Yeah. Is it only 40 years? Well, he, he started off as a producer in the 70s. He started having actual acting roles towards the end of the 70s with stuff like China Syndrome. But it's not until you get into the 80s with stuff like Wall Street and the Wars of the Roses that you start to be able to say, oh yeah, that's a Michael Douglas character. Normally you say that when you see a character in a mainstream Hollywood blockbuster who is a total dick. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like I, I don't have a mental picture of a young Michael Douglas what, not even with this excellent de-aging CGI that the film kicks off with? No, Paul Rudd just looks <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, it's... I mean, that's that's one thing they didn't think through, is casting ageless Paul Rudd next to... Aging. Yeah. <laughs> Wizened. Weird, sort of stretched-out face, Michael Douglas. <laughs> Like they've just grabbed his forehead and his jaw and just pulled as hard as they can. <laughs> hey, next to Hayley Atwell, who looks exactly the same as Hayley Atwell, but with a grey streak in her hair. Yes. <laughs> Getting to the quantum realm takes some G-force, all right. Yeah. 
It also makes it weird how Howard Stark is the only person who ch- turns into a completely different person when he ages. Yes, that is quite <laughs> odd, isn't it? But by the way, can I make a request when you do the synopsis of the movie? Can you do it in the style of Michael Pena? <laughs> no, Mick, that's a really dumb idea and I'm not going to do that, okay? Now, shall I move on to the very serious synopsis that I've got written out? Absolutely. And by that, I mean, take a second, because I've put the chat in front of the scroll bar, so I can't move on. <laughs> Okay, are we all ready? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I was at a wine tasting with my cousin. A lot of reds and you know how I feel about those, but there was a rosé there that saved the day. Anyway, he told me about this girl he was seeing who told him that her boss told her about this guy named Scott Lang, played by Paul Rudd, next con struggling to hold down a job after leaving prison. Yes, I already did it as a <laughs> Michael Penister. <laughs> <laughs> so... Desperate for money so that he can have a stable life and provide uh, and prove to his ex-wife that he's able to care for his daughter Cassie, Scott agrees to a plan to rob Hank Pym, Michael Douglas, a reclusive scientist and founder of Pym Technologies. Scott breaks into a safe in Hank's house, but all he finds is a strange red and black outfit. Scott puts it on and finds that it gives him the ability to shrink down to the size of an insect, like some kind of bee or termite. Uh, he's then contacted by Hank, who reveals that he arranged for Scott to steal the suit to test his skill. Decades ago, Hank operated as Ant-Man for S.H.I.E.L.D. until the death of his wife, Janet. He's played by Michelle Pfeiffer, but not yet. <laughs> no, pl- played by Hayley Lovett, who was cast as, <laughs> as cast as Janet Van Dyne because, and I quote, of her saucer-like Michelle Pfeiffer eyes. Because that's what we all think of when we think of Michelle Pfeiffer, isn't it? Her saucer-like eyes. <laughs> also, do you know what we've done? What? We've now made, like, the, what is this, fourth episode in a row that's tied into Catwoman? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway, Hank now needs a new Ant-Man to help him with a heist. Hank and his daughter Hope, played by Evangeline Lilly, are planning to break into Pimtech, which is now under the control of Lex Luthor. Hey, Sorry, <laughs> D- Darren Cross. But look, have you seen Corey Stoll? That that man is Lex Luthor. More so than... Uh, oh, what's his name? Jesse Eisenberg. That's him. Yeah. I try to forget. But then <laughs> Zack Snyder keeps bringing him back. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's it's yeah. It's weird that the villain in this film is more Lex Luthor than Lex Luthor is. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, Cross has managed to replicate the pin particles that allow Ant Man to shrink, and is planning to sell them to Hydra unless our heroes can steal his prototype yellow jacket suit. And can Hope begin to train Scott, but things are tense as Hope is clearly far more qualified to wear the suit and doesn't understand why Hank won't let her. But the two become closer once Hank reveals that Janet also used to work for S.H.I.E.L.D. as the Wasp, until she shrank to a subatomic level to stop a missile that disappeared into the quantum realm. Uh, Hank refuses to hope, refuses to lose hope the same way, and so is willing to use Scott instead as he's expendable. After lose learning... hope. See what you did there. Oh, I, I didn't even mean to. 
it just comes so naturally to you after all this time, doesn't it, Andrew? Of course. It's like I can think like an MCU writer. It's almost <laughs> pun conscious. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's actually quite good. I, I like that. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> so, after learning how to Ant-Man and stealing a vital component for Avengers HQ, including fighting with the Falcon, played by... I almost said played by Sam Wilson, because I've become that guy now. Played by <laughs> Anthony Mackie. Scott is ready for a heist, but a last-minute change of plans causes them to need additional help from Scott's close friends Luis, played by Michael Peña, Dave, played by T.I. Harris, and Kurt, played by the Polka Dot Man. <laughs> we were talking a bit about David Dasmalchen uh, before we started recording, and I think we should take this opportunity to just him David Dasmalchen because he is great. He really is. And it's it's so weird how like he reached, I think with Polka Dot Man, that kind of critical level of fame where suddenly you look back and go, wait, he was in everything this whole time. Yes. <laughs> the, That's the, Polka Dot Man's plot. The weirdest thing is looking back and realizing that he was the hired goon that the Joker got to double for Rachel Dawes in the Dark Knight. Yeah, that, that was like his first superhero thing, wasn't it? It was, yes. But hold on, that's in the DC universe, where he's also Polka Dot Man. Polka Dot Man has a dark backstory. Wow. I mean, to be fair, he also has quite a dark backstory. <laughs> <laughs> what a casting call that must have been, though. We're looking for a man who looks a bit like Maggie Gyllenhaal and has absolute crazy person eyes. They found him. I yeah. I think they didn't even need to cast for that. I think just as soon as they said that, David Dasmalchen kind of materialised in the room. You rang. <laughs> just kind of walked out a door that no one knew was ever there. <laughs> so anyway, the heist happens and they're able to destroy PIM technologies along with all the PIM particle data. However, Cross escapes with the Yellow Jacket suit and kidnaps Cassie. Scott beats Cross by causing the Yellow Jacket to implode, but to do so he has to go subatomic and falls into the quantum realm. Scott is almost lost but manages to repair his regulator and returns to normal size. Then in a post-credits, Hope gets a wasp costume like she probably should have had earlier on in the film. The end. As as much as any Marvel film has an ending. Yeah. yeah the next one. The 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 end of this bit. Yes. So yeah, that's Ant Man. It certainly is Ant Man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've got to say, it's, it's nice to have a Marvel film that has a, a smaller scale. I, oh dear. <laughs> I, 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 quite, I quite like it because um, in all the MCU interconnected gloriness, this is a film that does actually stand up on its own. Yes, I agree. You, you can watch this completely in isolation from the other 314 movies. I agree for the most part. Because I think it, it's basically what I was indicating at the end there. 
is I think it does suffer a bit from trying to set Hope up to be the Wasp in a subsequent film in a way that kind of makes her inclusion in this one a bit weird. It, it, <coughs> it does, but it still only ties it into Ant-Man and the Wasp rather than tying it into Avengers and all the rest of it. And we know that he gets picked up. You've got the, the little scene at the Avengers HQ. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got what you mean. That yeah. You only need kind of a passing familiarity with the rest of the MCU. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, that scene at Avengers HQ with Falcon is rumoured to be the thing that made Edgar Wright walk. Is it? Yeah, because Edgar Wright was going to direct this at first. Mm. And he actually, he started the process very early. He started, like, developing his version of Ant-Man, which was co-written by him and Joe Cornish. Um before the Marvel Cinematic Universe was a thing. Right. He had a passion to tell a story, a story about an Ant-Man, and it unfortunately got dragged into a bigger machine. Right. Okay. I I like that you're implying that Edgar Wright just wasn't aware of the fact that there was a superhero called (laughs) Ant-Man. (laughs) <laughs> Who knows? Yes. <laughs> but it's interesting because there, there are a lot of sort of rightish touches in it, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely his fingerprints all over it. I think a lot of the, the dialogue. A lot of the stuff. Oh, which I mean, is, I the dialogue in this film is good. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad we've got that covered yes. then. Yes, let's, uh... <laughs> But yeah, I think it's certainly a film that has a lot of tropey characters in it. You know, like the thief who's, you know, he's an ex-con and he's just looking to make his way in the world. And mm-hmm. the ex-wife who won't let him see his kid and the got a new husband who thinks he's no good. You've got ones like the, you know, grouchy mastermind of the heist and the the girl who thinks the con's no good but maybe kind of likes his abs a bit (laughs) but i think the dialogue like manages to elevate them so that they're all like very likable characters yeah interesting that isn't it because one of the surprises that i had going back to this after seeing particularly after seeing ant-man and the wasp um is that they seem to be very heavily trying to hint at a relationship between uh, Hope and Scott. And that doesn't really get addressed again in the sequel. In fact, Marvel in general just seems to move away from romance subplots in Phase 3. Yeah, well, I think they've got a lot going on, haven't they, by Phase 3? Yeah, I can see why, you know, people might find that whole Infinity War business a bit stressy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's kind of one of the most common complaints of kind of action blockbusters stretching back probably since they began is the romance feels incredibly shoehorned in. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. so it is interesting that Marvel's just kind of gone, eh, let's just take it out then. 
Yeah, I think sometimes there's a definite utility to it. I think Captain Marvel would not be as as successful with a romance subplot, for instance. But I don't know, it felt slightly odd this time. I thought that there's a certain space that's created for a romantic plotline when your heroes are incredibly cool, good-looking, wise-cracking criminals. It's sort of part of the genre. Yeah. And it doesn't really follow through this time. No. I, the, the the other area where I, I think it's a bit odd is normally in this kind of a situation in any other film, mm. the, the wrong footing of Cross would be to kind of honey trap him with hope. Mm. And that doesn't seem to be there. She seems to be openly cold towards him, and yet he seems to be sort of not that bothered about that either. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sort of glad they didn't do that. I think having hope be the honey trap character would be pretty... Yeah, it, it's not very marvelly. Um, how do we feel about uh, Darren Cross, incidentally, as a character? I, I, I'm used to do two D characters in comics, but that's because it's a two D medium. <laughs> I don't. He's. I think he's one of those characters who, for me, though people complain about the Marvel villains, like like Nick says, being two dimensional. I, I don't yeah. know that I necessarily need him to be three dimensional, though. Like, he's just, he's he's the bad guy. He's the thing that our heroes have to come together to stop. Yeah. And even, because the film does make some attempts to kind of deepen him by giving him that whole, oh, maybe it's the pin particles that messed up his brain plots. Yeah. But Mm. I I, I don't know why you need that. Like, it doesn't add anything. Like, it's fine for him just to be a scummy business guy. I mean, you've already got enough by the fact that he was pushed aside by Douglas. And the, the, possibly one of my favourite lines from the movie is, why did, you, why did you take me on as your protégé? Because I saw that you were like me. Well, why did you push me away then? Because you were too much like me. I thought that was quite yes. a nice little uh, line. And I think that was enough to sort of put him on this vengeance trajectory to take over the company and find the, the secret of the pin particles and the ant man, if you will. Yeah. Nobody says it as the ant man, do they? It's one of the superhero movies where that genuinely cannot work. Yeah. The Batman, fine, yeah. that works, but nobody is looking out to the sky and going, can you hear him? He's coming. The ant man. <laughs> well, that's the point, isn't it? You can't hear him coming because he's tiny. Well, no. Or is he permanently <laughs> far away because of his foot, small footsteps? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe that's the real trick to Ant-Man, is people see him coming and they just go, ah, that's fine, he's, he's miles away. And then he punches <laughs> them in the face. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think going back to what you said about Dan Cross, I, I have a theory, and it kind of links together basically any problem I have with this film Mm. is that I think there's a fundamental level 
of kind of Frankensteining this film together a bit. Like it yeah. feels like there's been a few different drafts and then studio notes, which have all just been mixed together into a final product. Yeah. I, I assume as a result of all the kind of shuffling around behind the scenes with getting rid of Edgar Wright and bringing Peyton Reed on. Yeah. Because it's like a lot of the plot seems like it makes more sense if Hope is originally with Darren and then when she realizes oh no, kind of pin particles, they're going to do bad things. That's when mm, she joins yeah. Hank and Scott. And then it, but then like, feels like they've said, no, we wanted to join Hank and Scott right from the beginning so that they have more time together. And then they've had to kind of work that backwards into the plot. Yeah. Yeah, I think phase two is probably my favourite run of the MCU, but it does have its problems. And one of the things that keeps coming up is I think it's very twist-averse. You know, things generally play out in the way that you expect them to. There isn't, barring the Mandarin reveal in Best Iron Man, uh, there aren't really many sort of absolute shock moments. And even in Captain America, The Winter Soldier... The twist in that feels transgressive because Robert Redford is a Nazi, holy shit, rather than, you know, because Alexander Pierce is believable as not a bastard. Yeah, it's certainly, I don't think anyone was expecting the villain would be anyone else except the guy who may as well be named Badson Guy Maninov. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And it's the same thing with Darren Cross. It's a very linear bad guy role, and it would perhaps have been less linear if that subplot that we're detecting the ashes of had been included. But remembering it, I found that more of a problem. In my memory, Darren Cross was just a bad generic villain of the type that, you know, early Marvel had a lot of. In practice... I think Corey Stoll is having so much fun with that role that it doesn't matter. And I think the other the other thing going back is, I I think Ant Man for me is kind of one of those superheroes. He was he wasn't as perennial as Spider Man, Hulk, Thor. Um, he was around in my seventies, but then when I came back to comics in the nineties and latterly in the in the early twenty um, tens. He wasn't mm. there. He wasn't a big player. There wasn't an Ant Man ongoing title. There weren't. Yeah. There weren't racks of Ant Man graphic novels. And I think from that point of view, Corey Stoll's um, Darren Cross is actually perfect because that's exactly the kind of villain you got in that era of comic. Yeah. You know there were. Yes. Yes, you had. Um, Sort of Fantastic Four taking on Doctor Doom every fourth issue, and Silver Surfer in three of the other four issues. Mm. But most of the comics had generic villain number two hundred and five lines up to take a pop at Spider Man, or the Fantastic Four, or the Avengers, or three or four generic villains team up to take on the Avengers. Yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, without spoiling our thoughts on the sequel, if we ever do an episode of that, I do think the villains in Ant-Man and the Wasp fit better with the franchise's overall heist movie vibes. But if we're going to have a supervillain in an Ant-Man story, 
I think Yellow Jacket works pretty damn well. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I should also point out Darren Cross is a character who's like very heavily linked to Scott Lang's origin as well. Because in the comics he appears in, it's fairly similar role to the movie where Scott Lang is an ex-con who steals the Ant-Man suits. But in that, it's because he needs to rescue a doctor who's been kidnapped by Darren Cross because he's the only one who can help Cassie because she's got some weird heart problem. Mm-hmm. And then after that, Hank Pym's like, yeah, I know you've done some bad crimes, but yeah, keep the Ant-Man suit. Because <laughs> as we've established, not a great guy. <laughs> anyway, I, I feel like we're probably going to start turning towards more positive things about this film. So before mm. we do, can I get my rant out the way? Good, do it. Because this film does one thing that is kind of common for sci-fi type films that I absolutely hate with a passion, which right. is that it feels the need to explain how a thing works and set very specific rules for how that thing works up until a convenient point in the movie at which it goes, <laughs> no, nah, actually doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> And it's even, it's not even a science thing. It's if pin particles shrink the space between atoms, you can't go smaller than an atom. Yes. It's almost like the physics of this story make very little sense. Yeah. And it's not even physics, it's just basic logic. But I, <laughs> yes. I, I think there is an explanation for this. If you look at the description of Hank Pym, it says, a former S.H.I.E.L.D. En- agent, entomologist and physicist. Pick a lane, for Christ's sake, Hank. Pick a lane. <laughs> See, I think that is, that is the only way I'll accept this, is if it's just Hank Pym, like, just bullshit, I don't know, shrinks the space Stop. between atoms. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the thing what yeah, was big is now smaller. Yeah, uh, there's a thing called the quantum realm. It's probably dangerous. There's probably no return. I can't swear to that because, like, I've been doing this stuff with ants over here, uh, and that kind of just boiled away on the side for a bit on its own. I've, I've left it unattended. Yeah. But, but again, the shrinking the space between atoms thing just stinks to me of a studio note yeah. where they've gone, yeah. no, no, we can't just say that it shrinks people. We need to explain the science. People like it when we yelled random science words in Iron Man, so we need to do that now. Do you, think, do you <laughs> yes. think that studio note led to months of discussion, to in and fro in between, no, no, I know we said you had to explain it, but that actually sounds like science. You need to step back from the detail a bit. We need it explained. It just doesn't have to actually be physics. You've come up with, oh, drink the space between it. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I assume this was some like beleaguered onset physicist that they kept haranguing <laughs> and wouldn't leave alone no matter how many times they said, right. But it's actually impossible to shrink things down. So no, I can't give you a scientific explanation. Maybe that was the easiest and simplest explanation that Professor Brian Cox was willing to give. 
It shrinks the gap between the atoms. Ant-Man can go a billion times littler than the smallest bit of dust what I've ever seen. But remember that that bit of dust came from the stars. I'm on a beach in Tahiti. I'm not talking about Tahiti, but I've got free air miles. I'm talking to you from the top of a mountain in Africa. It's got I, nothing to do with stars, but the BBC paid me to go somewhere I've never been. Andrew, this will not stop. I just want you to know this. <laughs> Fair enough. Shall I distract us all with my favourite science fact about Ant-Man? Go on then. Absolutely. Which is that if Ant-Man's powers did actually work like Darren Cross says they work, in that you can get smaller but keep the same density. What would actually happen at the end of that film is that Ant-Man just gets small enough and dense enough that he becomes a black hole and destroys the entirety of Earth. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They spent all this time trying to stop Thanos when the real threat was right under our noses. And actually, when you think about it, that would probably... It will probably have already happened when Hank put that tank on his key ring. Yes. Yeah, which... I mean, oh, that's, that's another must... fun thing, isn't it? Just the inconsistency of how much do things weigh when they're small? But be honest. <laughs> yes. But, but be honest. Don't we all want to ride on the giant Thomas? Please rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Don't we all want to ride on the giant Thomas the Tank Engine train? Yes. <laughs> well, that stuff... As in the sequel, is the highlight of the movie when it just you've got Ant Man, you've got Yellow Jacket. They both have the same shrinking and growing technology, and the movie just goes delightfully bananas with it. It is. I think I've seen Ant Man a few times, and I still giggle at the bit in the final fight where Yellow Jacket's about to be hit by the Thomas the Tank Engine, and then it just mm. cuts to Cassie in the room, and you just see the little bump. and the train falls off the track it's perfect i love that i love the that it must be a stab at man of steel right because there was all this was right this would have been developed right in the thick of all those debates about the level of city destruction in man of steel Mm. and it must be purposeful that there is a shot where Ant-Man and Yellow Jacket have an extremely destructive fight in a tabletop model city. Yeah. What what I also like about it is it evokes all those classic sort of silent movie era fights on tops of trains and... Yes. It's almost like you almost expect him to sh- Yellow Jacket to shrink Cassie down and tie her to the track in front of... <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, really? Actually, I think that is my one criticism of Corey Stoll's performance, is that he does not have a moustache that he can twirl menacingly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's great, because I know one of the common criticisms of the MCU is the idea of this finale, where it's just a hero versus villain who is the hero, but with a different colour palette. Yeah. But Mm. Ant-Man absolutely makes that work because his powers are so visually interesting. Yeah. Yes, completely. Yeah. Like, Um, you want to see people, like, growing and shrinking and, like, jumping through holes and windows and throwing, like, just toy building blocks at each other and 
accidentally turning ants gigantic. And the other thing I like about it is the fact that we all know, right, that no one could have successfully made this movie 20, 30 years earlier. The technology just wouldn't have been there. But actually, when you're watching it, it doesn't feel like you're watching technology. The the visual effects to, to create the the bigger world that Scotland's running through work. Yeah, and I think they work because for all that you rightly say this version of the story couldn't be done 20 years ago, it is one of those classic fantasies that the movies have always turned to, mm. you know, the, the idea of growing and shrinking. It's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It's Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. You watch it and your brain just clicks into the mode yeah. that you have when you're watching something like The Incredible Shrinking Man. Yeah. You just accept that this stuff is real. But then, I mean, you know, we're watching we're watching this or re-watching it for the, for the benefit of the podcast seven years on. That's, mm. that's like decades in movie making technology. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when we watch something like Shrinking Man or Fifty Foot Woman, now with a critical head on, especially with all the Blu-ray remasters and stuff like that, you start to see the flaws, you start to see the thing. And I I, yeah. I think this, even seven years on, stood up really well. There wasn't anything that felt particularly clunky with the effect. Yeah, I suppose part of the thing that you're tapping into there too is that when you watch those earlier movies that do something similar to this, yet you can see the joins, of course you can, but you forgive it because there's a level of invention that is so gleeful. And I think even if we'd rewatched Ant-Man and found the effects incredibly dated and unconvincing, which, as you say, they're not. But even if they were, there is still that level of joy in the film, just going, okay, now he's in the shower and someone turns the shower yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's it's that sort of fun. And again, it, this is the thing where Ant-Man's strength comes in, like we've mentioned with, with some of these films and, and where I think particularly the Captain America films fall short, is how... <laughs> Ow. Oh, I thought you were saying how no. it, it falls no, short in how. I just got to him. Just a bit of cramp. Just a bit of cramp. Um, <laughs> Isn't a very tiny man punching you in the leg? <laughs> it could well be. <laughs> um, I think my regulator slipped and it was just my right leg that started shrinking. Um... <laughs> It's it's the fact that this is a superhero movie based on a comic book and it's fun. It feels as fun as reading the comic book. Whereas some of the some of the Captain America movies have been like dour and oh god, Steve, you're so dull. Which I mean, to be fair, is also like reading a Captain America comic. That's true. <laughs> But yeah, you feel like you're reading a, a. You feel like you're watching a proper gung ho adventure. Let's not worry too much about the physics because this is fun. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, is Ant Man so good because it's a perfect representation of Scott Lang? Because it is a film that's done some bad things, 
but is very charming and has a lot of heart and looks like it hasn't aged a day. Yeah, good. Yes. yes. But does that mean Scott. that by by inference, then, we also at some point need to kidnap it, shut it in a van, and deliver it to Avengers HQ? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I saw that cameo in Civil War, well, it's not a cameo in Civil War, he's in it for like the last third of the film, yeah. isn't he? It did dawn on me. I did sort of sit there and think, is Scott Lang my favourite Avenger? And now I think, yeah, actually, yes, he is, yeah. Because <laughs> he's the one that's not pure and good and all the way through. You know, the, the rest have always been heroes, really. I mean, it, and, and he's, or not villains, rather. Yeah, and he's the one who has something to struggle against. Yeah. There's something refreshing about the first act of a superhero movie taking place in someone's crappy apartment. Yeah. 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 And seeing them fail to defeat the biggest supervillain of all, Baskin Robbins. <laughs> Baskin Robbins oh. and their manager, Greg Turkington, which who the hell expected him to have a big blockbuster cameo? But that was, it was a joyous, joyous cameo, wasn't it? It was, you know, uh, yeah, it's also so cool. pitch perfect so cool. that like corporate type of yeah man. I think you're really cool. Oh, by the way, you're absolutely fired. But hey, grab yourself a smoothie <laughs> yes. on the way out. <laughs> yeah, I won't. I, yeah. I won't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> also, I do love the little touch that he absolutely does grab a smoothie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's marvelous. If you want to get one of those mango fruit blasts, I mean, it's three more disturbing words in the English language than mango fruit blast. (laughs) The the most disturbing part of them is when you, you know, see the price of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a very, very charming film, I think. I remember when it came out, I was slightly unsure about the idea of having a Marvel story that's a palate cleanser. Because at this point, even the Avengers movies weren't exactly ultra grim. No. You know. I think Ant-Man and the Wasp was a palate cleanser after Infinity War. Yes. Yeah. Perfect idea. It makes absolute sense. Yeah. Uh, but I did think, well, do we need a bit of light relief for a franchise that's all light relief? But I think going back to it, outside of that context, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I think going back to what I said earlier about it being so standalone, it, absolutely. It, if, you've had a, if you've had a crappy week mm. and you've got a wet Sunday afternoon to fill, Put it on. It'll cheer you up a little bit. You know, it'll make the world seem a little bit brighter. Yeah. Which, after all, is what you want from this kind of film. So, shall we rank yeah. it? Yes, let's. I think it's time. Indeed. So, this is going on our list of 1, 2, let's see, we're up to 35 which, of course, range from A History of Violence to Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. So... I just I just wonder. I, I, I hope that David Hasselhoff listens to this podcast 
and realises <laughs> that his one foray into the Marvel Universe ranks lower than Howard the Duck. I have to stop you hey. there. Technically, he's done two forays into the Marvel Universe. Oh, yeah. Because he did have a cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. He, he did, yeah. And I think with Marvel using the multiverse to bring characters from like older Fox and Sony films in, it's possible that that was actually Nick Fury. You know, we could bring the Hasselhoff Nick Fury back into play. Oh, that would be funny, wouldn't it, if that turned up in Doctor Strange? Yes! Yeah. <laughs> Especially if he was stood on top of the Berlin Wall singing Freedom. <laughs> So, Ant-Man, um, I'm, I'm going to do a run-through of 10 to 15, because that feels about the right kind of place for it. Yeah, I'd agree. So, yeah. number 10, we've got Beef Vendetta. Number 11, we've got Birds of Prey. But do I even need to, at this point, point out, is definitely the film, not the TV series. No, because they're two separate lists now as well. Yes. <laughs> number 12, we've got The Batman. Number 13, we've got Spider-Man No Way Home. Number 14, we've got Shang-Chi. And number 15, we've got Iron Man. I definitely think it deserves to be in around that sort of Spider-Man area. It, it's more it's more fun than Shang-Chi and less never-ending story sequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I think it, it's hard for me because there's a few very acclaimed and well-loved films there that I was not fond of. But I would say if you want to put it around that Shang-Chi, Iron Man kind of level, that feels right. Yes, I think I'm looking at probably putting it just above Shang-Chi, just under No Way Home. Yeah, sounds about right. In what is now rapidly becoming the MCU-like block of power. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's true, isn't it? I mean, I've fought back against some of the allegations that these films are all the same, uh, but when you actually start ranking them against other stuff, you do realise, oh yeah, there's kind of a band that yeah. they're part of, isn't there? There's a block. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I feel like when I was preparing for this episode, I very much just had to make my peace with the fact that there's basically like a two-star band of MCU films, a three-star band of MCU films, three and a half-star band of MCU films, and a four-star band, four band of MCU films. I thought you were going to say, and a not-quite-four-star band. <laughs> Just continue whittling it down further and further <laughs> yeah. like Zeno's arrow. Yeah. Four points of quantum realm. <laughs> <laughs> I, to be fair, I think it would be very fitting for this show to just break the categorization down to the point where it's no longer useful. Yeah. <laughs> you mean we haven't been doing that since it started? <laughs> yeah, it, it'll be when we start separating this list and the TV list down into animated and TV and film. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should start breaking it down by superhero. Yeah. Yes. The top, the top ten Iron Man movies. Come on, Robert Downey Jr. Step up to the plate again. <laughs> the top sixteen Howard the Duck movies. <laughs> Welcome to Behold. Where we try to answer and the once original and for... one still comes out bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Behold. Where we try to answer once and for all 
what is the best superhero adaptation that begins with an F and was made in like the last five years? <laughs> and Fan Stick still doesn't rank. Yes. <laughs> oh God. I don't actually know. I've given myself a riddle that I don't know the answer to. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Paul Dano? Interesting that you should mention Fan Stick, incidentally, because uh, this isn't director Peyton Reed's first go-round with a superhero project. During the development for the 2005 Fantastic Four movies, which of which I think the best you can say is they look a bit better in retrospect. Yes. Um, yeah, they, they are not the worst Fantastic Four film. Yeah, you, you, no. you can look back in retrospect and say, you see, it could have been worse. Yes, but Peyton Reed was linked to those for a very right. long time. Right. And it with, you know, he's currently finishing work on the third Ant-Man film, after which he said that's his trilogy done, he's moving on. Could they be lining him up to take over the Fantastic Four now Ooh. that they're available to the MCU? That's possible. That's possible. It's possible. I think they've already got a director for the first one. I think is it Mark Webb? No, he's doing Spider-Man, surely. Uh, Unironically, yes, he directed the Amazing Spider-Man films, the ones with Andrew Garfield. Yes, and and I'm sure he'd be... Or maybe it's someone else. I'll admit, I probably couldn't name a lot of the directors of MCU films. Outside of Taika Waititi and And the Russo brothers. Oh, Russo brothers and he whose name shall not be mentioned anymore. Yeah, the the Russo brothers, uh, it's very easy to tell which ones they are because there's two of them. That's the trick. And on that sterling piece of wisdom, that's it from us. If you want this, to this to... is why he's a respected film journalist and critic, you know. <laughs> Stunning insight like that. If you want to listen to more, you can find all our episodes on the feed or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll make sure you never miss an episode. If you want to get in touch, our email is beholdpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at beholdpod. Graham, where can people find you? Answer the question inquiring minds need to know. <laughs> I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Graham W Film. I am on Letterboxd, just as Graham Williamson. I write for thegeekshow.co.uk, where I run their weekly podcast Pop Screen, looking at pop stars in the movies, which both Andrew and Mick have been on. And I also write for Horrified.com, the British horror website. Excellent. So check out any or all of that if you're a fan. And if you're a fan well, of this... that is just a lazy layabout. <laughs> And if you are a fan of the show, we'd appreciate it if you left us a review or just recommended this to a friend. And, uh, and if you are a fan of the show, there's a list of therapists available on our website. <laughs> so that's everything. Until next time, I've been Andrew. I've been Mick. And I've been Graham. So long and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>